Welcome everybody to Neurology Exam Prep from uh, Yale Neurology Department. My name is Safa Abdelhakim, and I have with us here Dr. Nicholas Blondin, who's a, a new voice to our podcast. Nevertheless, he's a very valuable resource. Um, he's one of our neuro oncology attendings here at Yale. How are you, Dr. Blondin? I'm great. How are you, Safa? I'm doing great, uh, and I'm so glad to get the opportunity to talk to you about primary brain tumors. So this is sort of going to be an overview episode about primary brain tumors, and we'll delve into more details about therapies and perhaps metastatic diseases at a later episode. Thanks again for the opportunity. I'm excited to talk about primary brain tumors, the lead focus of my professional career here at Yale. So I guess we'll, we'll dig right into it. Um, so just to sort of start a framework for our listeners, it would be helpful to know what, what the incidence rates of brain tumors are. Great. So brain tumors are actually the most common cancer study in children. Fortunately, they are rare overall as childhood cancers are rare, uh, but brain tumors are a common childhood cancer. In adults, brain tumors are uh, more rare. Um, they're one of the uncommon cancer types, but they do have a fairly high mortality rate amongst cancers due to a lack of, um, you know, really effective treatment options and just a lack of overall treatment options now compared to other cancer types like lung cancer or breast cancer. Uh, do we have a particular number that we, what we can think about just to sort of conceptualize? For children, the number is about five cases per 100,000 uh, per year. And for adults, the incidence rate is actually 40 cases per 100,000 individuals. And benign brain tumors uh, like meningiomas are more common than malignant brain tumors such as GBM. So what is a typical distribution for primary brain tumors? Um, so what is common, of, what is less? Yeah, about a third of uh, brain tumors are meningiomas. Uh, they're actually the most common type of brain tumor. Then the next most common brain tumor is a pituitary tumor. And pituitary tumors are interesting because they're actually considered an endocrine tumor not a brain tumor, although they occur in the pituitary gland, which is part of the CNS. Uh, but pituitary tumors are primarily managed by endocrinologists. And then glioblastomas are the most common malignant brain tumor, and they comprise about 15% total of brain tumors. And then there's a number of other less common, uh, less than 10%, um, such as nerve uh, sheath tumors like schwannomas, also known as acoustic neuromas. Um, less common gliomas like astrocytomas, and then uh, CNS lymphoma. Of malignant brain tumors, glioblastoma comprises about 50% of them. Astrocytomas are about 20%, and then the residual is uh, all the other rare malignant brain tumors, again, such as CNS lymphoma, oligodendrogliomas. For benign brain tumors, meningiomas comprise about 50% of the benign brain tumors. About a quarter are pituitary tumor, uh, about an Sixth are nerve sheath tumors, and then the remaining amount is a small number of other uncommon considered benign brain tumors like craniopharyngiomas. Why don't we start by talking about meningiomas? I think they're very common. We find them clinically. Uh, they, are, they are sometimes common questions on exams. Yes, again, meningiomas are the most common benign brain tumor, comprising a little over half of the benign brain tumors. They are uh, mostly benign, typically slow-growing and they arise from the meningothelial cells of the arachnoid layer. Uh, they are, again, increased with uh, incidence in uh, older age. The lifetime risk of developing a meningioma is approximately 1%. 
and they're more common in women compared to men in about a two to one ratio. Uh, it'd be helpful to know some radiological characteristics for meningioma. Yeah, meningiomas typically will appear as a homogeneously contrast enhancing mass, which is dural based. You often can see a small area going along the dura called a dural tail. It's pretty much pathognomonic for a meningioma. Some meningiomas also uh, will cause compression on the brain. And if you look on the T2 sequence, you can see a small rim of CSF around the meningioma and brain parenchyma, which is referred to as the CSF cleft sign. So meningiomas uh, can become quite large and then appear within the brain tissue or an intraparenchymal mass. But in fact, they are dural based and you can confirm that by seeing the CSF cleft sign. That's great to know. I think homogeneous enhancement um, is a very particular characteristic of meningiomas uh, for for our listeners to pay attention to. Um, As far as pathology, uh, what is a pathologic finding on tissue? So the majority of meningiomas are WHO grade 1. It's up to 80% are grade 1. They typically will uh, be comprised of uh, relatively homogeneous looking cells. They can grow in a lobular type growth pattern. Cells may have somewhat poorly defined borders. And occasionally you can see certain characteristics like intranuclear inclusions within the cell or calcifications within these tumors. The calcifications are known as somoma bodies. That's from med school. <laughs> I'm glad you it's find coming them. back. <laughs> yep, they look as uh, like they're purple on the H and E. They're nice little purple blobs. What are some typical symptoms for meningioma to be aware of? Meningiomas are actually uh, commonly found incidentally uh, when an older person has a scan done for an uh, issue like a fall or um, some kind of head trauma. And meningiomas are typically discovered that way, and so it could be an asymptomatic meningioma. And asymptomatic meningiomas rarely need urgent treatment. They typically can just be monitored with scans. For symptomatic meningiomas, common symptoms could include a first-time seizure in an adult or progressive cognitive impairments similar to a a dementia syndrome, but in fact caused uh, by compression on the brain from a a meningioma. Headaches can certainly occur as well, um, but headaches and isolation are rarely from brain tumors. headaches plus some other neurological uh, deficit is more consistent with a brain tumor as like a focal, you know, focal problem. Absolutely. Is there something that we need to think about differently between WHO grade two uh, versus WHO grade three meningiomas? That's a good point. So grade two meningiomas have a higher growth rate. They um, are still considered to be benign tumors, but they uh, grow more quickly than meningi- uh, grade one meningiomas. Grade one meningiomas typically will grow by no more than one millimeter per year in size, whereas grade two can grow by several millimeters or even more and are at risk of causing more brain injury uh, with that more rapid growth rate. Grade three meningiomas, which uh, fortunately are quite rare, behave more like a cancerous kind of brain tumor. They can directly invade the brain tissue. They act more like sarcomas in the body uh, and typically can be somewhat refractory to radiation uh, treatment. Um, And meningiomas can progress over time. So a tumor which was initially a grade two upon recurrence can recur as a a grade three and be a more aggressive uh, cancerous tumor. I like to think of grade two meningiomas as precancerous. I think my 
patients have kind of an understanding of, of what that would mean. So grade one meningiomas are benign, grade two can be considered precancerous, and grade three are cancerous. And so for grade two meningiomas, if they're unable to be completely resected, we generally recommend radiation therapy to the residual tumor to try to um, delay further growth or progression uh, of the tumor for a longer period of time. I know you just mentioned that as we were briefly going through the different WHO classifications. I was wondering if we can quickly overview the, the, the different treatment for meningiomas, at least um, you know, surveillance scans versus not, and uh, you know, what should we observe, what should we intervene on? You, know, you can never tell the pathology of the meningioma until you have the tissue and the pathology report in hand. But generally speaking, looking at MRIs, you can, you can tell how concerning does this MRI look and also the age of a person. So in a younger person with a large meningioma, there can be concern that it would be grade two or grade three. In an older person with a small meningioma, it's m- much more likely a grade one. So for asymptomatic meningiomas that are small, the preferred treatment is observation. You just monitor these patients uh, over time with scans, typically no more frequently than an MRI every six months. Oftentimes, a yearly scan is reasonable. And then some meningiomas will actually stop growing. They'll grow up to a certain size, and then they won't grow any further. So if you see stability of of a meningioma on scans for several years, that meningioma has likely become dormant, and you likely can stop scanning. Uh, in that particular case. For larger meningiomas, um, let's say greater than three centimeters in maximal diameter, these should be uh, watched possibly more closely, you know, at least every six months. And if they're starting to cause underlying cerebral edema, surgery should be considered as the first line. Uh, Radiation should really only be reserved for cases where surgery is not feasible or if the patient had a previous surgery and then is having a recurrence of the meningioma and it's not a surgical candidate then radiation would be an acceptable strategy. Generally speaking, surgery is the upfront treatment strategy of a large meningioma or a symptomatic meningioma. That's a great review. So just to recap quickly for our listeners to, to, to follow along, uh, meningiomas are the most common uh, benign brain tumors, although we'll get to it in the WHO3 classification really is more of a, a malignant uh, tumor. Uh, they're typically... Uh, dural base. They have a homogeneous enhancement pattern. Um, some signs that you can find on imaging is a dural tail as well as a CSF clift. Um, uh, pathology that we can p- pay attention to some keywords would be somoma bodies. Some common symptoms are seizures, headache, confusion, focal neurologic deficits uh, as they get bigger and as they cause more uh, brain swelling, then the, the, the symptoms obviously could become more predominant. Uh, WHO grade two is more kind of pre-malignant. WHO grade three is more of a malignant tumor. And uh, that reflects into how we uh, address it with treatment. Uh, asymptomatic small meningiomas, we typically observe when they're larger, that we tend to think about surgery or also continue to observe if they're symptomatic and small, we resort to surgery or radiation if they're large, uh, then also typically um, surgery and ra- or radiation would be options. Did that cover it all, Dr. Blondin? Yeah, I think that, that did cover it all. You find a patient who's younger than 40 with a meningioma, that would be unusual. So you should have kind of a concern that that meningioma is grade two. Um, I think this would be a good time to talk about gliomas. Gliomas are the most common malignant brain tumor in adults. There's actually four histologic subtypes of gliomas based on the WHO criteria. 
Uh, they range in um, grade from grade one to four. However, we now know that grade one gliomas are really a completely different biological entity compared to grade two through four gliomas. The, the WHO criteria is based on uh, histopathology and light microscopy without a real, really good biological understanding of what these diseases are. And now with new um, genomic data, we do know grade one gliomas are completely separate compared to grade two through four. Can we talk about uh, grade one gliomas? Yes, so the WHO grade one glioma is a pilocytic astrocytoma. Pilocytic astrocytomas are common in children and adolescents. They typically grow in the posterior fossa, um, so the cerebellum or around the fourth ventricle. They may less commonly occur around the third ventricle. They are felt to be due to a fusion protein of the KIAA BRAF fusion. And there's a common histological finding called Rosenthal fibers, which are kind of eosinophilic uh, red fibers in, in the tissue, and that's pathognomonic for pilocytic astrocytomas. These tumors are generally well encapsulated, unlike other gliomas, and they can be completely removed with surgery and that is potentially curative. Are there particular uh, radiologic imaging that we should pay attention to? Again, looking in the location, they're typically a posterior fossa tumor. They are well demarcated and uh, they can have cystic components and uh, also homogeneously enhancing nodules. Some of them can appear to have uh, central necrosis or regions of necrosis in it. Uh, But again, they're sort of an encapsulated tumor whereas other gliomas, grade two through four, infiltrative tumors uh, without a capsule. I see. And uh, as far as uh, the pathology for the tissue, are there some findings that, uh, that are key words that we can pe- keep in mind? Yeah, the key finding on the histopath is Rosenthal fibers. Yeah, another med school one. Correct. Um, <laughs> all right. The newer uh, thing to remember to file away is, again, it's the KIA BRAF fusion protein which is the biological underpinning of this kind of tumor. As of now, there is not a uh, molecular inhibitor of this fusion protein, but those are in development for cases where the tumor cannot be uh, completely removed with surgery. That's, that's great uh, information to keep in mind. I think we can move on to talk about WHO grade two. In adults, the common uh, gliomas are WHO grades two through four. There actually is a revision coming out to the WHO criteria um, later this year in 2021, which is going to stratify tumors based on their IDH mutation status. And so the IDH gene um, encodes the uh, isocitrate dehydrogenase protein. It's an enzyme in the citric acid cycle, which is important in cell metabolism. In IDH mutated cells, they have a um, accumulation of a metabolite called 2-HG or 2-hydroxyglutarate. And the high levels of this metabolite will induce epigenomic changes in the cell DNA, causing methylation of a number of gene promoters. And essentially this can make the cell become cancerous. This is really, the IDH mutation is the driver mutation of astrocytomas, which are WHO grade two or three tumors. And then further mutations can occur in a cell after it develops IDH mutation, making it more malignant. And with the more mutations that occur, really the more malignant the cell becomes, 
There can also be chromosomal alterations that occur due to the IDH mutation. And a, a common mutation is the loss of chromosomes 1P and 19Q in the cell. And that causes the development of the oligodendroglioma. It's another grade two or three um, type of glioma. It has a different histologic appearance than astrocytomas, but the biological underpinning is the IDH mutation. I see. And um, I, I know we'll probably, this is probably a separate topic, but I was wondering whether the IDH mutant has any clinical manifestation or relevant to treatment. Well, we know that these tumors will respond better to radiation and temozolomide chemotherapy. So patients with IDH mutated gliomas have a better prognosis than IDH wild type gliomas. Um, those, those treatments are just more effective. There are drugs in development to specifically target IDH. Um, they're IDH inhibitors. Uh, IDH mutation can also occur in some forms of leukemia. And there's an FDA-approved drug for that called ivocidinib, which is being studied in brain tumors. It's also now understood that IDH mutation can um, cause a cell to have increased susceptibility to PARP inhibitors, causing DNA damage. And combining a PARP inhibitor drug with temozolomide could um, be an effective chemotherapy strategy for IDH-mutated tumors. I see. And, uh, and typically, those, those need to be resected, correct? Yes. Typically, the initial treatment would be uh, maximal safe surgical resection. So astrocytomas can be more difficult for neurosurgeons to resect because they're infiltrative tumor cells within normal brain parenchyma. So to a surgeon's eye in the operating room, they really can't distinguish what is the you know, astrocytoma component of the brain tumor versus what is normal brain. So some intraoperative techniques can be utilized to try to increase the extent of resection, specifically use of intraoperative MRI. So the surgeon can uh, have the patient in the OR do an intraoperative MRI, visualize on the T2 sequence what's residual abnormal T2 signal, and then resect more. And the gross total resections can even be done of infil these infiltrative diseases um, just using that intraoperative MRI technology. So that's pretty cool. And that's the prognosis funny. is better for patients with bigger resections. So if a patient with an astrocytoma can have a gross total resection of their tumor, they're going to live substantially longer than if they had only a biopsy because you're just debulking more tumor cells. You, you know, you're just decreasing the cancerous cell burden in the, in the brain. And that just allows the further treatments like radiation and chemotherapy to be more effective. Uh, why don't we talk about histologic, histologic patterns for, for uh, grade two and, and maybe any particular uh, imaging findings that we should be on the lookout for? Sure. So again, for grade two tumors, grade two, WTO grade tumor is typically an astrocytoma. Um, they have IDH mutation. They also commonly have mutation of the P53 gene and loss of the ATRX gene. And they uh, appear infiltrative on MRI. They typically are a T2 hyperintense lesion within the brain. They're typically non-enhancing. They can be T1 hypointense. They will affect the gray and the white matter. On their histology, they'll just appear as a kind of normal white matter with increased number of cells. and. Uh, I did mention uh, another subtype of grade two tumors is oligodendrogliomas. Oligodendrogliomas are also IDH mutant, 
And by definition, they have loss of the 1P and 19Q chromosome segments in the cells, which is referred to as 1P, 19Q co-deleted. On histology, these will look like tumor cells with a perinuclear halo. Uh, it has something called fried egg, fried egg appearance. <laughs> so that's, it's fun to see. Like You're like, oh, yes, all the fried eggs. It's an oligodendrogliomas. But these tumors are also very susceptible to treatment with radiation and chemotherapy and have a generally much more favorable prognosis than um, other kinds of brain tumors and specifically grade four uh, brain tumors. So patients with oligodendrogliomas should be able to survive for more than 10 years. Even diffuse astrocytoma now, where we hope that patient um, should be able to survive for years following that diagnosis, at least five, but you know, ideally now more than 10 years. Yeah, th th that is great information. I definitely encourage all our listeners to look up some of these histologic findings to just sort of uh, commit it to memory as we're talking about it. Those tend to be calcified sometimes, is that correct? Oligodendrogliomas often are calcified. All right. CAT scans are useful <laughs> to identify that. So As you know, sometimes on MRIs, calcifications can be difficult to detect, uh, but it's obvious on CAT scans. What do we, how do we approach treatment to grade two tumors? And I realize that you spoke about it briefly, but we can quickly, those are not very high yield for examination, but it would be good to uh, give full picture to our listeners. Yeah, typically for grade two tumors, you need to have tissue, um, you know, tissue confirmation of the diagnosis. Some grade four uh, glioblastomas actually can look like they're grade two glioma when they're first uh, first developing. They may not be enhancing yet. So we know now getting the tissue is, is very important to understand the molecular basis of what this tumor is. If it um, is an IDH mutant tumor, um, a bigger extent of surgery will lead to a better prognosis for the patient. And then you need intraoperative MRI to achieve that. And then following surgery, uh, generally, the treatment strategy is to treat the patients with radiation and chemotherapy together. Uh, it's typically temozolomide chemo or TMZ, unless the patient is felt to be low risk, meaning that they are a younger person, uh, younger than age 40, and they had a complete resection. So younger patients can be potentially observed after they have their resection, but we know the tumor will recur, it, uh, will recur eventually. And then when recurrence happens, then, you know, obviously follow-up treatment would be indicated, potentially a second surgery, followed then by the radiation and chemotherapy. Why don't we talk about anaplastic astrocytoma, so uh, WHO grade 3? Yep, so WHO grade 3 um, gliomas are essentially just more aggressive variants of astrocytomas. Um, the astrocytoma has developed more mutations in it. It may have additional chromosomal alterations or copy number variants. And so on the histology, you just see an increased number of cells compared to a grade two tumor. There's increased mitotic activity. Sometimes you can see vascular proliferation in the, in the tumor, but you do not want to see necrosis. So if necrosis is seen, that's a hallmark of a grade four tumor. Again, going back to, uh, what I mentioned earlier, the IDH mutation status is really the, the key uh, molecular finding of, of a tumor. If it's IDH mutant, it's an astrocytoma. If it's IDH wild type, then that is a glioblastoma, which now is kind of by definition grade four. 
and, and I know that as we, you know, for radiologic findings for anaplastic astrocytoma, uh, this is one that would probably heterogeneously enhance. It can, um, yep. They can have heterogeneous enhancement patterns. They appear as infiltrative type lesions affecting the gray and white matter together. They often will start having mass effect. Um, they can cause midline shift. They can have tumor-associated cerebral edema. So overall, just starting to behave uh, more aggressively than our grade two. Are there uh, more mutations that we can dis discuss re related to gliomas? So I mentioned in uh, astrocytomas, the key driver is the IDH mutation. And then it typically we'll also see a P53 mutation and loss of ATRX. Then subsequent mutations can include EGFR amplification, PDGFR amplification, alterations in the NF2, NF1, or RB pathways, and PI3 kinase pathway alteration. I see. So it's a number of, number of different growth <laughs> pathways of the cell. Unfortunately, none of these can be targeted by targeted chemotherapy. It's strategies um, and clinical trials to target one uh, particular growth pattern have not been effective for glioma treatment to date. And I think that's just because of a redundancy of different growth patterns and tumor cell growth is not driven by one mutated pathway. It's due to chromosomal alterations and loss of tumor suppressors, which are unable to be targeted with molecular, uh, small molecule inhibitors. It's wonderful how far we've come um, when it comes to identifying molecular variations. Uh, so thank you for, for sharing this with us. Um, I think this is a good time to talk about the most aggressive, the WHO grade four, uh, also known as glioblastoma. So glioblastoma, also known as GBM, is the most common malignant brain tumor in adults. It is uh, now really felt to be by definition IDH wild type. Glioblastomas are typically biologically driven by chromosomal alterations, such as gains of chromosome seven, loss of chromosome 10, and then other chromosomal alterations. The EGFR gene is located on chromosome seven, and so a majority of glioblastomas have EGFR amplification uh, you know, due to these extra copies of chromosome seven. It uh, has increasing frequency with age, although can occur in a person of any age, including children, but the median age of diagnosis is 62 years old, and it's slightly more common in men than women with a ratio of 1.3 to one. Are there a particular radiologic pattern that we can keep in mind? Yep, so glioblastomas are uh, typically a ring-enhancing mass lesion within the brain parenchyma. The ring enhancement refers to seeing um, enhancing signal around the periphery of the tumor and non-enhancing or T1 hypo-intense signal in the center part of the tumor. Uh, that central part is essentially just dead tissue or necrotic tissue it's where there's been rapid cellular growth and then loss of oxygenation leading to tissue uh, destruction. And you typically will see mass effect due to cerebral edema associated with this lesion. There also can be satellite lesions in other brain regions. Uh, glioblastoma can form a nodule as a primary mass, but it, it's primarily an infiltrative disease and glioblastoma tumor cells will disperse from the primary site throughout the brain parenchyma and also form satellite tumors. So even with huge resections like an entire lobectomy or even hemispherectomy of a tumor, they, the patient will develop a glioblastoma elsewhere in the brain. 
once they have developed, um, you know, a visible glioblastoma tumor. Certainly very aggressive and certainly probably what we see on our neurology floors. Yeah, um, unfortunately, it's, it's, an, uh, it's a very aggressive cancer. When it is um, discovered, it's a cancer that cannot be cured, but treatment options do exist to, you know, again, try to stabilize the tumor and give the patient as much progression-free survival time and overall survival time as possible. The first step in glioblastoma treatment is really surgery and a maximal safe surgical resection. If patients can get a gross total resection of all of the visible glioblastoma, then that patient does have a chance at longer-term survival. In some cases, patients can survive beyond five years with glioblastoma, although that's a very small percentage of patients, probably less than 5%. The typical survival time for glioblastoma ranges from uh, about six months to two years with major prognostic factors being the age of the patient, the location of the tumor, as in whether it was resectable or not resectable, and a molecular finding called the MGMT methylation status. Absolutely. We can actually um, dive a little deeper into the phases of treatment for glioblastoma. And I realize this is the area of your expertise and we love your lectures. Uh, we'll, we'll try to have it be an overview for our listeners. Well, thank you for that. So after the patient um, comes to medical attention, typically with GBM, it's a first-time seizure in an adult. And they'll present to the ER uh, due to that seizure. And a scan will be done showing a mass in the brain. Then an MRI will be done confirming a, a mass. Typically, it's ring-enhancing. And the patient will get set up for uh, urgent surgical intervention. If the tumor occurs uh, and grows in a place where a larger section is feasible, that's the best treatment strategy initially. And so the patient will undergo uh, surgery, maximal safe surgical resection. Following that, the uh, pathology will confirm diagnosis of the tumor. The IDH uh, status will be tested. It should be IDH wild type for GBM. A second molecular test called MGMT status will be tested and the tumor can be subtype into the methylated or unmethylated MGMT subtype. We treat both subtypes uh, with the same therapy. Unfortunately, we don't have different stratifications yet with therapy. So all patients with newly diagnosed glioblastoma are um, typically recommended to undergo radiation therapy, which is done in daily fractions for a certain number of doses ranging from 10 to 30 fractions along with chemotherapy, typically temozolomide or TMZ chemotherapy, which is given during and then after radiation. Patients will then have progression at some point, typically within the first uh, eight to 12 months after they complete radiation. And then if progression occurs, they can potentially undergo a second surgery, uh, second line chemotherapy, participation in a clinical trial, or a second line radiation strategy. And then patients, you know, care really becomes individualized at that point. Um, typically, patients might go through a few different progressions before their neurological disabilities advance to the point where their quality of life really is compromised and continuing anti-cancer therapy is not really appropriate. And at that point, that's when it's, you know, the right time to transition to palliative care and hospice program. And, and you mentioned something about uh, MGMT status, methylated versus unmethylated. And I was wondering if you could just remind our listeners, um, how does that translate clinically? Right. So in the MGMT, uh, well, the MGMT gene has a promoter region that controls its transcription. 
the gene encodes the MGMT enzyme, which is an enzyme that will repair DNA that is damaged by certain things such as temozolomide. So if patients have high levels of MGMT enzyme in their GBM cells, temozolomide is less effective. It also appears radiation is uh, probably less effective in these cells as well. So in patients with an unmethylated MGMT uh, promoter, they have high levels of the enzyme and will be more resistant to radiation and chemotherapy. In patients with methylated MGMT promoter, the gene is turned off by that methylation and patients have lower levels of MGMT enzyme and therefore will be more susceptible to radiation and chemotherapy. So when I look at a patient and I'm looking at their MGMT status, I think if a patient has an unmethylated MGMT, their average survival time should be somewhere around a year to a year and a half versus if they have a methylated MGMT status, they should survive for somewhere like two to three years. So you can see that's like, you know, a fairly significant difference of time. Um, you know, you get probably on average at least a year longer survival on average with methylated versus unmethylated. So it's helpful to just give patients some idea of, you know, how aggressive is this tumor and how much do they really need to plan? Absolutely. Absolutely. So methylated is good. Methylated um, is good. <laughs> you want the methylated if you're going to have this. Also, yeah. again, if it's resectable. So if it's in the, like the right frontal lobe or right temporal lobe and it can be completely resected and it's methylated, that's great. That patient should be able to survive for several years with therapy and, you know, hopefully with good quality of life for the majority of that time. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned uh, temozolomide, and I know that this is um, very, um, you know, it's essentially the, the medication that we use for glioblastoma. Are there particular um, aspects about it that we should keep in mind? Um, any particular side effects? Yep, temozolomide or TMZ is an oral chemotherapy. It's given in capsules. It works by functioning as a DNA alkylator. So it induces DNA damage through the, the uh, through that process. It crosses the blood-brain barrier fairly well. Um, the toxicities for tem temozolomide are um, GI toxicity, uh, primarily nausea or vomiting. And it also can affect bone marrow function, resulting in low platelet count, thrombocytopenia. And in um, certain individuals, it can also cause a low white blood cell count, leukopenia. So patients on treatment with temozolomide need to take anti-nausea uh, supportive medication like Zofran and also need to have blood counts monitored. The blood toxicity is not t significant for most people with temozolomide, but a small fraction of people, probably somewhere like 3 to 5%, do have a much more significant sensitivity of bone marrow to temozolomide. And in those patients, you know, they usually can't receive much temozolomide. Unfortunately, it's just, you know, it's too toxic for their body. I see. Um, are there any other chemotherapies that we could um, perhaps consider? Yes. Yeah, so the typical second-line chemotherapy is called bevacizumab, also known as Avastin. Uh, bevacizumab is a monoclonal antibody against a VEGF, V-E-G-F, which stands for vascular endothelial growth factor. It's a hormone secreted by GBM to induce blood vessel growth into the tumor. It also will cause uh, leaky capillaries and lead to high levels of cerebral edema. 
So by treating a patient with bevacizumab, you'll bind up all the VEGF in their body and you get a rapid reduction of cerebral edema and usually some shrinkage of the uh, brain tumor, which can help a lot with symptoms. So bevacizumab is a pretty useful agent for, uh, for treatment of symptomatic GBM, but it doesn't seem to have direct anti-cancer uh, properties. VEGF is not a growth pathway used in nearly all glioblastomas. So the tumor cells will continue to divide and proliferate and, and gradually increase their infiltrative burden in the brain if a patient is on bevacizumab therapy. These are definitely key chemotherapy uh, agents that we can utilize in caring for our glioblastoma patients. You mentioned radiation as a key therapy as well, and I was wondering if you can shed some light to uh, what is typical approach to radiation therapy in these patients and what are side, some side effects. Yeah, radiation is a uh, classic anti-cancer strategy. Uh, radiation beams cause DNA damage or DNA strand breaks, which would kill dividing tumor cells. Radiation is delivered in a radiation machine uh, by radiation oncologists. For a given patient, a treatment plan is made to deliver the uh, therapeutic dose of radiation to the region in the brain where the tumor is located. And then the remainder of the brain usually gets a lower amount of radiation because we do know, again, glioblastoma is an infiltrative type disease. So patients get a daily dose of radiation up to the goal total dose for their particular tumor with the, the goal dose um, varying from person to person uh, based on the age of the patient. So elderly patients um, typically can only tolerate a lower dose of radiation. Younger patients can typically tolerate a higher dose. And if the tumor is located near certain radiosensitive structures like the optic nerve or pituitary gland, there may need to be dose reductions of radiation because of that. So typical side effects of radiation are fatigue. It builds up over time. The more fractions of radiation a patient gets, the more significant the fatigue becomes. Patients also will typically have hair loss uh, where the radiation is being delivered. And radiation may cause loss of appetite as well. Beyond the initial treatment time of radiation, radiation can induce changes in the brain or brain injury, resulting in an inflammatory process called radiation necrosis. And radiation necrosis is non-neoplastic, but it, it can cause increased cerebral edema in the brain, contrast enhancement that looks like a tumor, and it can behave in a growing manner like a tumor, but in fact, it is, it is not a neoplastic process. Radiation necrosis typically occurs three to six months after radiation has been completed, and it seems to be a VEGF-mediated process which can be treated effectively with bevacizumab. And th this is also when we can experience some vasculopathy, radiation-induced vasculopathy. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. So patients in the uh, longer term, several months uh, after completing radiation, may have white matter changes. Uh, white matter disease, and cerebral vasculopathy. And the, what I wanted to also review, uh, Dr. Blondin, is any sort of give a hint to our listeners for any upcoming treatments that we could be on the lookout for or excited about. Well, immunotherapy um, has been proven to be a game changer in other cancer types, such as melanoma and lung cancer. The current generation of immunotherapy seems to be ineffective for glioblastoma. Um, for reasons that are not completely understood, but uh, next generation immunotherapy is being developed and tested at Yale. Uh, there's a certain molecule called TIGIT, which was identified by Dr. Hafler's lab to play a role in 
yeah, to play a role. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it turns out that I think in patients with multiple sclerosis versus brain tumors, they have a differential expression of TIGIT. So in MS, you know, you have too much immune activity in the brain. In glioblastoma, you have not enough immune activity. And a regulator of immune activity in the brain seems to be TIGIT. So there's a drug, which is a monoclonal antibody that interacts in the TIGIT pathway, which um, is going to be tested in clinical trials, actually opening next week, with Yale being the primary site for that. There's other oncolytic viruses, which, have, uh, which are in development. The uh, Duke polio virus treatment got a lot of publicity. There's other oncolytic viruses um, in development. There's also some medical devices um, which are in development or already approved for GBM. Uh, the device that's approved is called the Optune device, which delivers an electrical field through the brain that inhibits the uh, process of mitosis by interfering with molecular interactions uh, called dipole alignment. That sounds super exciting. I feel like we've covered a lot and it might be time to recap really quickly uh, what we've spoken about uh, uh, regarding gliomas. Let me see what I remembered. Um, so we can really quickly go over the WHO grade one. This is mainly polycytic astrocytoma common in children. It t tends to be a posterior fossa, so cerebellum, fourth ventricle, uh, sometimes around the third ventricle. There's a BRAF fusion, the BRAF fusion protein um, uh, is a mutation that we can look at for uh, Rosenthal fibers. Um, as well as um, uh, those tend to be cystic um, on imaging. Um, WHO grade two is diffuse astrocytoma. So this is more common in, in sort of young adults. Now we're getting closer to the more malignant types, but not quite. This is really sort of doesn't behave. It is still infiltrative um, and, and it does still need surgical resection, but this is the one that won't enhance on imaging yet, uh, just because it, it's not as aggressive yet. Um, it will still uh, reveal some nuclear atypia, uh, atypia on, on pathology. Um, obviously, this is, uh, it has the IDH mutant. Uh, it shouldn't have the wild type just because it's not, as, it's not the aggressive gliomas. Other WHO grade 2 is oligodendroglioma. This is diffuse, infiltrating, sort of slow growing. It is also an IDH mutant. And this is the 1P19Q uh, codeletion. Um, and the pathology will typically be fried egg pattern. And before I forget, back to the diffuse astrocytoma, this is the P53. Is that right? Correct. Oh, yeah. So diffuse astrocytoma is P53. Oligodendrocryoma is 1P19Q co-deletion. Correct. Uh, as far as anaplastic astrocytoma, this is also an IDH mutant, but could also be IDH wild type. Just, you know, you can see the pattern as we get closer to the more aggressive astrocytomas. We can start seeing IDH wild type. We can also start seeing some enhancements. So the anaplastic astrocytoma can contrast enhance. And there's going to be more mitotic activity on pathology. And finally, glioblastoma. This is a high-grade glioma. It is 90% of it is IDH wild type. And this is going to be a rim uh, contrast enhancement and uh, typically necrotic center um, most of the times. In pathology, is going to be showing the nuclear atypia. It's going to show necrosis in the center, uh, microvascular proliferation, as well as uh, increased mitotic activity. You know, in treatment, the main things we need to keep in mind is the methylation status. Uh, so methylated tends to respond better to uh, temozolomide as well as radiation, unlike unmethylation. Um, and then, um, you know, we've spoken about some um, 
upcoming therapies um, that could be exciting in the field. All right. Uh, why don't we talk about acoustic neuroma next? Acoustic neuroma is a uh, relatively common benign type of brain tumor. They uh, typically will appear on MRI as a homogeneously enhancing mass lesion centered out of the internal auditory canal, uh, typically uh, unilateral, and they commonly are found by uh, causing hearing loss in the patient. Um, it's usually a unilateral or one-sided hearing loss, and patients may also report tinnitus, uh, feeling of fullness in the ear, or vertigo, discovered on, uh, you know, typically MRI imaging, and they can be treated if they're large with surgery or radiation. The typical histologic findings of the acoustic neuroma are two different regions within the tumor, referred to as Antony A and Antony B. The Antony A is areas of compact and elongated cells with occasional nuclear palisading. And the Antony B is areas that are less cellular with loosely textured cells and indistinct processes. Most of the acoustic neuromas are NF2 mutated as their uh, genetic or genomic signature. And I know at Yale, our typical practice pattern is to try to remove them with surgery and spare the uh, facial nerve along with removal. Typically, removal will uh, result in hearing loss for the patient. Acoustic neuroma grows from Schwann cells, which are the uh, cells that myelinate that cranial nerve. Schwannomas can occur on any cranial nerve. Uh, when they occur on the eighth nerve, they're referred to as acoustic neuromas. I see. Um, I always, I always was confused as a medical student about schwannoma versus neuroma, and it really is just used interchangeably. In, in yeah, the, schwannoma uh, and neuroma, I think, is used pretty interchangeably. Um, right. There's neurofibroma, which is a peripheral nerve type of tumor. We can talk about pituitary adenoma next. Okay, great. So pituitary adenoma, um, again, as I mentioned, is sort of a, um, a tumor I don't see a ton of because it's considered an endocrine tumor rather than a brain tumor, although it occurs, uh, you know, in the intracranial compartment. There's a few different types of pituitary adenomas. They may be secreting or non-secreting. They typically are discovered as enhancing masses arising in the pituitary fossa. If they become large, they typically grow upward and they can cause compression on the optic chiasm, resulting in a visual field deficit. Usually it's loss of the upper visual fields first due to compression on the bottom part of the chiasm. And then as the, the like, compression becomes worse, patients have further and further restriction of their visual field down from the top to the midline. They may be painless um, and just come to medical attention by eye, by eye doctors due to the visual field impairment. And I mentioned again, there could be secreting or non-secreting. The secreting is the majority, about 75% of pituitary adenomas are secreting. And the, the most common hormone secreted is prolactin. That's the prolactinoma. That's about 30% of the secreting type of pituitary tumors. And prolactinomas will cause galactorrhea or breast milk production and amenorrhea or, or loss of the menstrual period. And so mm. prolactinomas can be discovered by OBGYN doc. <laughs> yes. Then the other, other hormones that can become altered would be the ACTH, which can increase cortisol levels causing Cushing syndrome. Growth hormone secreting, it causes acromegaly or enlarged hands and tall stature. And then uh, TSH secreting, that, that can cause hyperthyroidism. And LH and FSH also can be uh, hormones that are secreted, and that affects the uh, menstrual period. 
Let's see. That, that, what else can I tell you? For non-secreting tumors, that's 25%. They only need intervention if they're large and, and causing problems from mass effect, like compression on the chiasm. Small adenomas, they can just be monitored with MRI. If they're hormone secreting, then there are certain medications which may be able to kind of block their um, hormone secretion. For example, prolactinomas can be inhibited by bromocryptine or cabergoline. Uh, they're two meds that are prescribed by endocrinologists. You were mentioning that this is a type of tumor that kind of um, endocrinology plays a big role in, in their management and treatment. Correct. We can talk about ependymoma next. Yeah, ependymomas are uh, in a sense similar to meningiomas in that they're considered benign tumors, but they actually also come in WHO grade one, two, or three with grade one being the most common and considered benign, grade three being malignant uh, and rare. Much like meningiomas, they can cause trouble if they um, have significant mass effect on adjacent neurological structures. So ependymomas arise on the uh, ependymal surfaces. So they grow in the ventricles or along the uh, spinal cord. And because the spinal column is a smaller space than the intracranial compartment, they you know, can cause spinal cord compression in patients. They also can disseminate through the CSF and leptomeningeal compartment and form numerous tumors throughout the nervous system. And so they can, they can cause a lot of neurological disability, even though they're considered grade one tumors. Because they're slow growing, chemotherapy is really not effective for treatment of these tumors. They need to be treated with either surgical resection to debulk them or radiation therapy, essentially to stabilize their growth. What are pathologic findings that are key for ependymoma? The typical hallmark of an ependymoma is the formation of pseudo rosettes, which are this whirl patterns with a central blood vessel around them. How about imaging? Is there a particular imaging characteristic we can be uh, looking at for? They typically are homogeneously enhancing their nodules like that seem to arise from the dura. Again, they would be on the PL surface. So the differential usually of a, of a mass in the spinal column would be ependymoma versus spinal meningioma. Both are homogeneously enhancing. Correct. As a medical student, I always thought about ependymoma and medulloblastoma together. And I was wondering if this is a good time to kind of review it. That way we can draw some contrast um, since they are sometimes part of the differential. Yeah. Yes, with malignant tumors. That's a great point. Ependymomas can occur in children also. That's why you thought of them together with medulloblastoma. So medulloblastomas are the most common pediatric malignant brain tumor. So adults get glioblastoma and children get medulloblastomas. Medulloblastomas typically occur in the posterior fossa, uh, much like pilocytic astrocytomas, but they generally tend to be homogeneously enhancing. They grow really quickly and cause rapid onset of neurological disabilities. Uh, typically, it's hydrocephalus, so it'd be a child who develops inability to walk. That's also, a, I guess, the presenting sign for pilocytic astrocytomas, but in medulloblastoma, it comes on within days. Whereas for pilocytic astrocytoma, it might come on over weeks or months. Medulloblastomas are a, a very cellular tumor. It's a tumor primarily composed of small blue cells. The common histologic finding is something called Homer Wright rosettes. And we now know there's four biological subtypes of medulloblastoma due to different um, driver mutations. So there's four, these four different groups have variable prognoses. 
with uh, group three being the poor prognosis group. Group one, two, and four may have moderate to good prognosis, and group three is the poor prognosis. What are typical uh, histopathologic findings? And for medulloblastoma, it's a highly cellular tumor. It's going to be small blue cells. Um, typically, a CNS lymphoma would be in the differential, but these would uh, you know, not be of lymphoma lineage. And the pathologist will see Homer Wright rosettes. As far as uh, other brain tumors, I think it would be good to review primary CNS lymphoma. And I think this could be like a, its whole lecture. Uh, nevertheless, we'll <laughs> quickly review it and we can dive deeper in uh, further podcasts. Primary CNS lymphoma can be its own lecture. Um, <laughs> it's Especially a, as an, sub- with an expert like you. Yeah, it's a subtype <laughs> of uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, it's generally thought to be a subtype of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, but only affecting the central nervous system. It's unclear whether the cell of origin is within the brain parenchyma or whether the cells actually exist in some nearby nodes like cervical lymph nodes and traffic to the CNS preferentially. But in primary CNS lymphoma, it's a clonal population of lymph cells. Generally, it's B cells, and they form multifocal infiltrative tumors within the brain parenchyma. They also can spread to the spinal fluid or leptomeningeal compartment. Uh, They form mass lesions in the brain, uh, can look similar to GBM. Uh, They may be homogeneously enhancing, but sometimes they also have central necrosis. Uh, If it's multifocal, CNS lymphoma is higher on the differential than if it's unifocal. Unifocal would be GBM. You need need tissue to confirm the diagnosis of primary CNS lymphoma. You'd want to see a clonal population of lymphocytes. If they're B cells, they should be positive staining for CD20. I know radiologically as a resident, you know, we always teach that the diffusion restriction typically is more common of um, uh, hypercellular tumors like lymphoma, unlike glioblastoma, which doesn't always cause that pattern. And certainly not like homogeneous um, um, diffusion restriction. That's a great point. So you see the diffusion restriction in lymphoma because it's a highly cellular tumor. And just due to the cells being packed in tightly, that that is what causes the restriction of water diffusion. That's wonderful review. I really appreciate your time, Dr. Blondin. Um, I think this was, uh, I hope this is going to be as valuable for our listeners as it is valuable for me. Thank you very much for sharing your time with us. Thanks again for the opportunity. 